Thank you very much, Neil. Hello, everybody. It is lovely to be here. I am a huge admirer of the work of Oxford Mindfulness Centre. Uh, so it's a real, it really is a real privilege to be invited here and to have some time with you. I'm going to start um, in a slightly different place from what I was originally going to start. And that's because I had the most amazing conversation this morning. I had uh, a wonderful conversation with Helen and Ian from an organization called 50 Million Voices. And there are 50 million people in the world uh, of employable age that stutter. And 50 Million Voices is an organization that's seeking to transform the working lives of people that stutter and their employers and society. And we were talking uh, this morning and, and Ian said a couple of, of sentences that I just thought really resonated with some of my work and what I'd like to talk with you about today. He said, first things he, he said was, it takes two to stutter. It takes two to stutter. You have the person with the stutter and their voice depends on the listener. That relational aspect is utterly vital. So how the listener shows up affects the person who stutters, it affects their voice and can silence them, can take voice. And then he said, but the person that stutters needs to put on the ears of the person who's listening. The person who stutters needs to put on the ears of the person that's listening. In other words, they need to also appreciate what the experience might be for the listener, whether they might feel uncomfortable or not knowing what to do. So they have a role. And I was talking to Ian and Helen about this kind of dance that happens when we come into dialogue. And of course, we were talking about a very particular situation, but this is what, and it's spotlighted and it's highlighted and intensified in the situation of, of stuttering. But I'm interested in how we have our conversations in workplaces, how we show up for one another and ourselves how our presence affects the voice of others. And so I'm going to talk about these two projects uh, that I've been researching for the last about seven years. And you know what? Both of them started off as two distinct projects. I was doing one over there, which was called mindful leadership. So at Ashridge, we were um, busy doing a, a you know, weightless control study, examining the effect of uh, mindfulness practice on particular leadership capacities. So we were essentially interested in, well, you know, at the time, mindfulness was just starting to rocket <laughs> in interest. And we were like, okay, so what's its relevance with leadership? And can we study that? Can we come out with some language and data that of course help is quite helpful in the leadership space in the workplace? So that was one project. And then over here, I was doing obviously a completely separate project on speaking truth to power. I'm gonna start with that one. And then I'm hoping to show how these two projects are utterly connected and related and kind of the same thing. So 
you and I have conversational habits. Yeah. We have habits around what we tend to speak up about in which sorts of contexts. And we have habits around when we decide we better not say anything. So we have subjects that we feel fine about talking about with some people. And then we have other situations and other people and other subjects that we hardly ever talk about or we feel uncomfortable. And we also have habits around who we listen to. Yeah, so cast your mind around the people that surround you at work and at home and in, and in the community. There's some people that we kind of, you know, sort of sit up and go, oh, right, I'm listening, I'm listening. And, you know, there's some people that we kind of go, oh, da, 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 and off we go and we're sort of daydreaming. So we form in habits, yeah, habits of what gets said and habits of who we hear. And those habits, we tend to develop in our teams as well. So in the workplace, in our teams, we talk about some stuff, but rarely about other stuff. And certain voices tend to be heard more than other voices. Our organizations have what we call cultures, which is, let's face it, a very kind of ambiguous term. But one way of thinking about organizational culture is what gets said around here and what doesn't and whose voice counts whose voice is heard and whose voice isn't. So these habits have very big consequences. They define, personally, individually, they define our lives. When you think about it, your choices of what to say and who to hear define the course of your life. They define your relationships, your career. They define whether you feel, you know, really proud of yourself at the end of the day. They can seem really mundane choices, yeah? If you cast your mind back today, yeah, you have made multiple choices, even if you're in a part of the world where you've only just got up, where I can see that there are some people that might, <laughs> might have only just got up, you'll still probably have made some decisions around what to say, whether it's verbally or via email or whatever and whatnot, and they may seem really mundane, but what if you make the same decisions and choices tomorrow and the next day? And what happens if you make those choices over the next five years? That ends up having quite large consequences on us and, and the people around us. And of course it has huge consequences at work. And I've been exploring, well, what happens when we fall into habits? Uh, our habits can create organizations that are really unsafe when people are silenced and can't speak up. And that can end in tragedy. It can, our habits can create really innovative and agile organizations where ideas get talked about and people challenge and it feels safe to do that. That has different sorts of consequences. But the one thing I've noticed coming back to Ian and his words on it takes two to stutter. I had so many organizations, leaders, get on the phone to me and say, Megan, we've got a bit of a problem because those people over there aren't speaking up and we need them to speak up. And basically they need to be a bit braver, generally. A bit more assertive, that's what they need. And uh, if you're familiar with your, my work, you may have heard this story, but in the, the first couple of organizations I, I studied, um, I heard the phrase, I went to speak to they, and this is an exact quote, from they, last time somebody spoke up round here, they disappeared. And so it became very obvious that you can point at people and think that it's their fault. 
and they should speak up and we need to fix the silenced people. But actually, <laughs> really, you're probably a lot better off turning the lens around and looking at how do we invite people to speak? How do we create, how do we show up to create a space where people don't have to be so brave in the first place? This is the relational aspect of speaking up. Speaking up depends on listening up, yeah? And so often we seem to forget that in the workplace. We point at others and kind of tap our toes rather impatiently and expect, you know, wait for them to change. Actually, it's all relational. So you can probably start to figure out where mindfulness is going to fit in here in a second. Um, we've explored, we created a, we've asked thousands of people, I'll ask you now to think about this question. Think about something that you haven't spoken up about yet at work or at home or in your community. So just think of, bring something to mind now that you haven't said. And just ask you the question, what silences you? Why, why are you choosing to stay quiet on that? And we've asked thousands and thousands of people that question and essentially created a kind of framework. I'm, after all, I am from a business school. I like my frameworks called the truth framework. Um, it's not exhaustive, but it, it identifies five, five issues that mean that we often stay silent. And they're actually five issues that also affect whether we listen to others. So we call it the truth framework. So speaking up depends on whether we trust, the T is for trust. It depends on whether we trust the value of our own opinion and whether it feels like it's something that matters to us, whether it's a battle worth fighting. You'll know that if you're a parent, I've got two daughters. You know, there's some things that you're like, well, you know, it is important, but actually I've only got a finite number of things that <laughs> I can speak about here. Is it one of them? So trust is one of those first things that affects whether we speak up. If we're going to listen, if we're on the other side of this relationship, I'm not going to listen unless I trust the value of other people's opinions. And, you know, we all here trust some people's opinions on particular subjects more than others. Okay. So that trust is a real key issue. Risk is another thing that we consider. If I'm going to speak up, I think, right, this is a really important thing. It matters. But what happens if I say it? So we have a pile of thoughts that are then triggered around our perception of risk. And generally we tend to worry about, we might upset the other person or we might be perceived negatively. But also our thoughts generally go to what happened last time I spoke up or what happened last time a colleague spoke up or what happened actually, you know, when I was growing up in my childhood, what habits did I learn? around speaking up? Did I learn that that's an okay thing to do, that that's a safe thing to do? So actually when we make these choices, there's a lot going on in our thoughts processes. Now, just obviously a little taster is, you know, are we aware that those thoughts are driving our habits and our patterns around whether to speak? And if we're listening up, do we appreciate how risky it can feel for others to say something to us? I'll talk about that in just a second. Uh, the you of the truth framework is understanding. So do we understand the power and the politics? So speaking up is a political act. 
generally, in that it affects power, it affects people's agendas. Are we aware, can we see the sort of systemic patterns at play? Can we see what I sometimes call the rules of the game? How things are done round here? You know, when you join a new team, cast your mind back maybe to the first time that you joined a new team or you joined a new group. And you know, when you kind of like look around a bit at the beginning and you think to yourself, so how does it work around here then? How's, how's this work? That's kind of understanding. And again, are we able to have that perspective where we see the system and the dynamic occurring? T, the second T, is so interesting. And again, slight apologies if you've heard me talk before, because I'm gonna I'm gonna do one thing that I, I tend to ask people to do. You know, cast your mind back. Um, about 15 minutes. So 15 minutes ago, I started to talk. Now, if you're present on Zoom when you're listening to this talk, you'll have seen my little picture come up on your screen. If you're listening to this, you'll have heard my voice, my accent. And in that moment, you will have labelled me. I wonder whether you remember that. You might have been really conscious of some of the labels that you applied or completely oblivious to it. But you, you probably will have labelled me female, British. If you could see my little picture, you would have added quite a few more. You'll have added white something about, actually, whether you're listening to my voice or looking at my picture, you're probably coming up with labels about my age. <laughs> won't, won't go there. Um, so these titles and labels, of course, we title and label ourselves and others. And those titles and labels, depending on the context, carry our whole construction around status and authority. And we're out, our minds are wondrously busy figuring out relative status and authority. And what does that mean for whether I should say something or whether I should listen? And of course, as I'll mention in a little while, it's also the territory of, of bias, of discrimination. And, you know, how, how can we become, I wonder, <laughs> I wonder, has anybody got any ideas about how we might, <laughs> what practices might we do that enable us to be a little more aware of this labelling process as it's as it's happening and some of the implications of it. Um, and one more thing on that, with a colleague called Ben Fuchs and my wonderful co-researcher and co-author, John Higgins, we wrote something uh, for Harvard Business Review called, Do You Have Advantage Blindness? So when we have the titles and labels that tend to convey status in a particular situation, we're often the last people to realize how important those labels are. So when we have those titles and labels that convey status, we're very often the last people to really notice the impact. It's not until we don't have those labels that we kind of look at them and go, wow, they make a difference, don't they? They really make a difference. We call that advantage blindness. That's a big, important topic for leaders, as I'll come on to. Final part of the truth framework. 
so again, just unpicking why we tend to do what we do. The final bit is the how to. So I might have something that I really want to say, but unless I know how to say it, unless I have an opportunity, unless there's a forum, an invitation, unless there's a chance to say it, I might stay silent. Unless I have the words, unless I know what to say, I might stay silent. If I'm looking to invite others to speak up, I have to know how to. How do I do that? When do I do that? Where do I invite people so that they can speak up to the best of their ability? So all of these factors and more are going on when we make all of these choices around speaking up and listening up. And, you know, think about habits that you have. Might be, you know, whatever, exercising or eating or whatever to do with habits. If we want to disrupt a habit, it's quite helpful to know why we do what we do in the first place, isn't it? It's quite helpful to kind of know some of these mechanics that go on that mean that we tend towards doing a certain thing. If we can understand why we do what we do, we might be able to identify the places that we can start to disrupt things, either as individuals and in our habits or in our teams. Okay. So this is the bit I just want to connect now with, with mindfulness. We, we identified what I call some traps to speaking up and listening up. The traps, uh, again, they are just examples. So for example, speaking up, three common traps. One trap that means that we often stay silent is something that you'll be familiar about called the imposter voice or the imposter experience. And as you probably know, it's that little voice, that thought pattern that pops up in our head and tells us that we shouldn't speak. We have no right to speak. We will probably mess this up. It's that sort of inner critic voice, I suppose. It's another, actually, it's another example of where very often in the workplace, we've just sort of pointed at people and said, you know, sort your inner imposter voice out. You really need to be braver. Of course, the imposter voice, as the work of Ruchika Tulshian shows, she wrote a brilliant article on this recently, again in HBR. The imposter voice is often the voice of society that we've accumulated over time. You know, that thought that pops up that says, you have no right, you shouldn't, you won't do this well. That's, that's constructed in our society and it often silences us. Another thing that silences us is, is abdication. Another thought that crops up and it says, actually, it's not my job to say anything, to speak up here. Somebody else will say it. It's HR's job. My manager should say something. And that might be absolutely wise, of course, and completely correct. The problem is that we do find in teams that everybody's thinking that. <laughs> and so nothing gets said. So again, another thought, an assumption, pattern that says, eh, not my job. And a final trap for speaking up is that we speak up in a way that suits us rather than the other person. So we speak up according to our own cultural preferences. We use language from our specialism. We use acronyms that we're used to without seeing the world from the other perspective. So with the traps around speaking up, can you see how what would be quite helpful is can we spot thought patterns that affect our choices around whether we speak? Can we see that imposter voice as a thought, not as truth? 
can we see that assumption that says not my job and are we able to hold it and turn it round and look at it and question it with curiosity are we able to empathize are we able to see the world the perspective from other views or are we lost in our own world each of those traps each of those kind of habits are held in place if we don't have the awareness of them so how can we build our present moment awareness of some of these things that keep us silent? And of course, can we become aware of some of the things that we do that are keeping other people silent? So here's the thing, if we've identified three listen up traps. So the first trap is that we don't realize how scary we can be. I'm just looking at some of the faces on the screen and some, some people are nodding, kind of going, no, I get that. And other people are going, uh, oh, no, no, I'm totally not scary. <laughs> so particularly, again, remember my interest is, is, is quite a bit in leadership. And very often leaders have titles and labels that convey, you know, are there to convey status. And of course, many of the leaders that I work with are lovely people, really lovely, great intent, really want people to come and talk to them if there's a problem, but they do not realize that they are still scary, yeah? And what we know from our research is that the more senior you get, the more optimistic you are that other people are speaking up when they're not. The more senior you get, the more you overestimate your listening skills, the more you overestimate uh, how approachable you are and you underestimate how people are challenged and how they're keeping silent. So, and that's almost inevitable actually. So with our first listening up trap, again, can we see ourselves as others see us? That's a really critical ability to lift sort of our observation and see ourselves from another place. Another trap is um, we identified, we, we interviewed a chief executive who really, uh, really wanted his team to speak up. But whilst we were interviewing him, he paused and he said, well, I, I, I do have a little list in my mind of the people that fit and the people that don't. So in other words, he had a little list in his mind of the people that he went to, to listen to, and the people that kind of sort of forgot about or, or actively put on a list of don't go there. Now, you and I have our little lists as well. Yeah, we have our little lists of the people whose opinions we seek. Can we have an ability to be aware of who's on our little lists and to question that? And to see whether, okay, are all the people on my list that I go to, do they look a lot like me? <laughs> Am I in an echo chamber here? So again, we're talking about how can we practice this capacity for present moment awareness when I'm about to reach out for someone's opinion? And it's the same person again. How do I spot that in the moment and disrupt it if it's not helpful? And the final one is that usually makes everybody smile is we, we can send shut up signals 
rather than speak up once. So with our body and our face, we can send signals in the moment where if you have somebody who is teetering on the edge of saying something, they're looking at you and going, shall I say it, shall I say it? Are we aware of the vibes that we are giving out in that moment? Are we choiceful in those? Nancy Klein, who you may know, you know, a colleague of mine, um, and a phrase I often quote is, she says, know your face. You know what your face is conveying, okay? Because that impacts in relationship. It affects another person's voice. Can we be choiceful on it? So here we go. I think it's fairly obvious for, for those of you that, you know, obviously you're aware of mindfulness and the practice of mindfulness. Can we train the ability to pay attention in the present moment so that we can start to spot these habits as they are about to play out? Can we pause and notice that we're about to do what we always do and then start to disrupt them? Now, at Ashridge, when we were doing our work with uh, leaders and we, the eight-week program, we also uh, recorded them for about 27 hours, actually. <laughs> talking about their practice of mindfulness and their experience of it in the workplace. And we transcribed all that and in a glorious process went through a coding exercise to try and figure out, okay, so what are they saying has happened as a result of mind meditation practice? And we came up, sorry, it's another framework. It's only it's the only other one I'll, I'll, call, I'll talk about we came up with what we call the AIM model. And this was from, from coding. We, we noticed that they seem to refer to their, their, their capacities building in three areas. A is allowing. So our leaders were noticing that the practices we were giving them and the practice that they then were finding that they were able to do out in the workplace was this ability to accept that what is the case is the case. So this is the non-judgmental aspect. Instead of having a huge amount of energy pushing against what is actually happening and blaming and judging, allowing is the ability to hold and kind of go, okay, so this is what's here. I may not like it, but here it is. <laughs> and not spiral into a, a long exercise of self-blame or blaming others. That's allowing. And of course, in mindfulness, in the mindfulness practices that we were running, which were kind of a MBSR, MBCT practices, a lot of it's about, you know, there is nothing that you should or shouldn't be feeling or thinking. Here it is. Let's just become aware of that and hold it. And then the I of the AIM model is inquiry. Can we be curious, move towards with interest? So we practice that, of course, in, in meditation. Can, you know, how can, we, how can we come to our breath in a way, you know, despite the fact that we've done this thousands of times, can we come to our breath with that beginner's mind, with that curiosity of like, wow, what is this? And then the M stands for meta-awareness, this capacity to describe and observe our present moment experience, that you know, intimate detachment, that ability to kind of go, oh, look what I'm thinking. Oh, goodness me, look what I'm feeling. Isn't that interesting? Now, what our studies showed is that the, the leaders were referring to their abilities growing in each of these three areas. And what that gave them was what I would slightly controversially say is 
the most important leadership capacity <laughs> that there is. And that's the space to respond rather than react in automatic, habitual ways. Opening up a space where, where one is able to choose. Now, of course, then you need the capacity for <laughs> good choice, but you know, nothing happens unless we have that ability to spot ourselves, that ability to open up a space where we can ch choose responses. We can't do that without that meta-awareness, without that inquiry, and without that capacity to be open and compassionate with what we find. So that space to respond ends up being absolutely fundamental if we are to disrupt habits, any habits. But of course, the habits that I am really interested in is how do we pause in the moment of relating so that we can find our voices and others are more able to find theirs. And the, I suppose the final thing I'll, I'll just mention is that we've looked at this AIM model, not just as obviously our study on mindfulness began very much with the individual you know, the individual practice. And now we're really interested in, well, how, what does it look like if you develop AIM in a team? <laughs> what might it be like if you can create um, the conditions for a mindful team? What does that even mean? Well, well, one thing it might mean is that you enable, and develop a team that's able to accept what is. That doesn't mean, as you know, probably, that doesn't mean that they don't seek to change in the future. But for now, this is where we find ourselves. And instead of using so much energy at blaming each other or the environment or the manager or society or whatever can hold ourselves open and compassionate how can we create that compassionate openness in a team how can we shift the obsessive focus on advocacy in our team meetings which you know you have to kind of very often find the space to put your point across. How might we create teams that were <laughs> inquiring, that were curious and open for learning from one another? And how do we create teams that are able to lift themselves from the, I'm gonna pull on what Heifetz, a, a, a management, thinker, uh, his analogy. Heifetz talks about leadership requiring the ability to, as he puts it, be on the dance floor where all the action is happening. Yeah, you're on the dance floor with everybody. Busy, busy. But he says you have to have the ability to go up on the balcony and then look down on the dance floor as a leader. Actually, you need to do both. Really tricky. But of course, we know what that's like, you know, in, in, the, in the world of mindfulness. How do you create a team which is in the action, but also has this ability to pause and go, oh, hang on a second. What if we looked at this from up here or over there? You know, what, what, would, our, what would our colleagues think of this? What would our customers think of this? What would our competitors think of this? What's going on in this team dynamic? It's the kind of how rather than just the what. Again, we seem to have an almost, 
you know, pathological obsession in the workplace with doing stuff, targets, getting stuff done. How do we, how in our teams do we also have the space to examine how we go about doing things? So some of our current research is in that space. How do we create aim in our teams so that we have spaces in our workplaces that can be fulfilling? I, I will end here because I'm on 40 minutes, but it is heart-wrenching to me to see how we squeeze out our possibilities of flourishing through the way we show up with one another at work, through the lack of spaces where we can engage in this dance that I talked about at the beginning where we can show up in a way where we find our voice and enable others to find theirs. So I will, I will stop there. Um, could go on for ages, but Neil, you better pause me because I'm on a roll. That was fantastic. Thanks, Megan, so much in that and so much to uh, unpack. We, we do have a few minutes left for questions and there are some questions coming into the chat now. So um, please do keep those coming and I'll get to as many of them uh, as I can. Uh, so Lesek asks, and forgive me, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing your name, forgive me. Um, but Lesek asks, where is the right boundary for encouraging naturally sulky people to speak up? How to tell whether their silence is just of not being asked or encouraged or is it because they're sulky? <laughs> um, well, I guess, first of all, the starting place is to notice the assumptions that you place on another. You know, and, and the lovely thing is that, you know, can you notice that there is a label that's entered your brain that says that person's a bit sulky? <laughs> That's probably a good place to start because, and in fact, that's a place probably where most people, you know, go wrong is that they, they, they form a label that then obviously affect in this dance affects how they show up and they show up with a like, you're sulky, aren't you? And guess what? The other person goes, Ooh, I don't know about this person. They don't seem to like me. I think I better stay quiet. So, you know, first of all, noticing the impact of those that labeling process and the ability to hold it open and then your ability to be curious. Now, you, you know, what a lot of work that I do with leaders is how do you open up a, a space that feels psychologically safe? Yeah, and the, the only thing you can really do is, is, is how do you invite somebody in to speak? and create the conditions before you start that judging process where you kind of label them and then it's too late, yeah? So that's a very good question. And, and I think highlights where people go wrong all the time is that we don't notice the labels. The labels are, are blinding us when we come in relationship and then they almost end up self-fulfilling. Um, so uh, yeah. I could say a lot more, but the, the well, labeling and opening up that space. And I've done a lot of work in how you open up that space as well, um, which which you can you can also look into. Yeah, so that that, it, uh, that idea of psychological safety in workplaces. There's a couple of questions coming in which maybe um, speak to that. So Gail asks uh, about how empathy, trust, and vulnerability in the creation of workplace space are important. Mm. Uh, Dennis asks, can you say something about the relationship between silence and belonging? And I wonder if those all have to do with psychological safety in a way. Yeah. Um, do you know what I, sorry, what occurred to me just 
now is that I've just been drawn into the, there's a big debate, uh, particularly in the US right now about politics at work. And some of you may be following kind of Coinbase and Basecamp and um, uh, some leadership decisions to ban certain sorts of conversation in the workplace. And uh, in my conversations around this over the last few days, you know, it, it comes down to, you know, underneath that, those sorts of reactions is, is a signal that there is a lack of trust, a lack of belonging. You know, almost, I was talking to John about this today, you know, if banning conversations is the answer, then, you know, we really need to be asking a different question. You know, what, what is the, what is, what have we created here that means that we are unable to hold a space where we can engage with difference? Uh, do we feel like we belong in this community that we will be heard? So, uh, you know, the, I have to say it's, a, it's an enormous question, you know, mm. how does, does trust and um, belonging and empathy fit here? Uh, aside to say that it's all over it, you know, it's it's absolutely the foundation for it. But then it's circular, you know. How do you create that? Well, you create that by showing up in a particular way. Yeah. So and there was a particular mention of vulnerability, and of course, yeah. Mae Brown has written and talked a yes. lot about vulnerability yeah. and the, the power yeah. of vulnerability. Is it, does that map onto the workplace as well? Yes, it does, and. Uh, you know, one thing that I'm particularly interested in is when you find yourself, and you might not even realize you're in this position, but if you are in a relatively privileged position of power, you may be more able to speak with vulnerability, you know, to be able to take the risks that actually you can't take when you aren't in that position of privilege and power. And the influence that leaders can have when they are able to talk about vulnerability op more openly can help to invite others in. Um, and, and we've seen that happen quite a lot in the, in the, in the teams that we've studied. Um, you know, how do you take that initial risk to show up differently. Very often, you know, some people find themselves in a position where actually they can they can take that risk right. and others can't. So there's a there is a, a responsibility there, I think. Yeah. And interesting that 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 idea that you know when leaders model a particular behavior, then that in effect perhaps permits um, the, the, the same thing. Something here from Charlotte asking when a when a team dynamic is so historically ingrained in the hierarchy, is there a way of impacting on that from the bottom up rather than the top down? Um, yes, I work with a I work with a big bank, and I was working with their middle managers, and they were you know they were just sort of, sort of had their head in their hands and they were kind of pointing upwards and going you know, okay, there is no point in running a workshop here on speaking up because they ain't listening. Um, and, you know, it's awful up there. And uh, the I mean, the and I've worked in quite a few places like that. The conclusions I have is that we are all able to varying degrees to disrupt cultural norms. We all play our part in perpetuating or disrupting cultural norms. Those that are in powerful positions, and they are very often hierarchically powerful, hold a particular influence on those relationships and those cultural norms. But it, we can all slip into a habit of pointing and kind of go, going well I can't do anything around here because 
so there's an element of, of, of looking in the mirror and going, well, actually, hang on, what choices do I have here? And if I were to disrupt this, even in my small way, how would I begin to do that? And I believe that those in powerful positions have the, the marked amount of responsibility in that. Great. So a question, but can you say, just in a nutshell, very, it's, now, it's now four minutes too, but a question about what you actually did in terms of mindfulness with the leaders that yes. you implemented. I think you've actually written a book on it, haven't you? You and Michael have written a... Yeah, Michael Chaskelson. Um, uh, and yeah, you, so that book's called Mind Time. But also if you go to my, because I'm never going to be able to answer this in full detail enough. If you go to my website, which is meganrates.com, you'll find the research report that details this. But essentially we split the group of 57 leaders into two groups and we ran eight week programs based on Michael's, uh, Michael's book, Mindfulness in Eight Weeks. And he uses practices and exercises and reflection processes that are draw from both MBSR and MBCT. And the leaders attended workshops and they also had home practice. And we logged, they logged how much home practice they did or in some cases didn't do. <laughs> and am I right in remembering that the, the ones who did on average more practice actually got more benefits? So those that practiced over 10 minutes on average per day had statistically significant improvements in their overall levels of resilience and mindfulness. And the more practice you did, the stronger the, the, the outcomes. So kind of, you know, it, it came in with a number of other research projects that said, you know, about 10 minutes seems to make a difference, but preferably if you've got a bit more, even better. So I have one final question from, from myself, if you'll allow me moderator's prerogative. The, the, the organization that you went into with the they, they need to speak up. Uh, and, the, and the they said, oh, when people speak up, they disappear. Can you give us a happy ending for that organization? Um, <laughs> that's hilarious. That's a, um, sort of. I, I, no, I'm not going to give you a happy ending. I am just going to explain one more thing about it, which I think is really important. Um, I dug into the story, obviously, who disappeared when. Seven years ago, three chief executives ago, somebody had challenged the chief executive in a group situation and they weren't there the following week. Nobody knew whether they'd actually resigned and therefore they felt able to speak up in a way that they hadn't previously. So the, the moral of the story is that um, these stories that circulate, they stick, they, they stay around. They really do. And uh, you know, the negative ones tend to be a bit more interesting than the positive ones. And the leaders, leaderships, you know, leaders need to watch out for that. 